What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. This week on the show, we've got Jimmy Vaughn, which I'm super stoked about. I'm going to get to that in a minute. I'm chilling today. I, uh, man, I had to reschedule my Europe tour. You know, it's one of those things. It's, we're like in this time of history again where artists are needing to figure out, oh, my tour's booked. Am I actually going to go on it? I know many of you are musicians in the same boat. You got live things booked. You don't know whether it's going to happen or not. For us, it was just a bunch of weird international kind of travel restrictions. And the fact that I have several different passports represented in my band with different requirements for different countries to get in and out. I don't know. It's a whole mess, but, uh, you know, I'm going to roll with it. And we rescheduled to March and April. So if you're in Europe, check it out online. I'm going to, it's on my website. I'm going to be on tour in Europe, March, April. I'm stoked about it. And the U.S., I'm still planning on going to. November, West Coast, and January, February, East Coast, Midwest. So check out the website. I'm going to be out there. Check it out. The show is going to be slamming. I got the full Wong Notes band thing. It's it's going to be insane. It's going to be ridiculous. Super fun. Now, on today's show, we got Jimmy Vaughn, an absolute legend. You probably know Jimmy Vaughn as a blues rock player. Somehow one of those guys that like also just gets associated with a state. To me, he's just like Texas blues. I don't really know why. I just like associate the sound of Texas blues and Texas rock and that sort of thing with with cats like Jimmy Vaughn and his younger brother Stevie Ray Vaughn. And like there's there's just different geographical things that feel like they're associated with certain bands sometimes and their sound. Like me being from Minneapolis or whatever, you know. Cats from Philly. So, you know what? You probably know who Jimmy Vaughn is because he's a total legend. So, we had a really great conversation. I totally admire what he does musically and just think that it's incredible that he's been able to do so much over so many decades and just keep at it. So let's not hold it up any longer. Jimmy Vaughn. This season of Wong Notes podcast is brought to you by DistroKid. If you're not familiar with DistroKid, it's who I use to upload my music and whatnot to the internet. So I put out an album, DistroKid will send it to Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon. With other services, sometimes they charge you by the album per year. So like you have five albums out, they'll charge you for each album every year. With DistroKid, it's just one yearly fee. As many albums as your band has, they can be up there. And that's just one cost. I love it as somebody who puts out a lot of music. And if you're in a band or that sort of thing, you can actually pick your team and they'll do splits for your team. So you can choose this person gets 25% of the royalties, this person gets 25%, this person gets 2% because they didn't contribute to the group project or whatever. No, 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 no. You can choose whatever percentage you want for as many collaborators as you want. So it's amazing. Check it out, DistroKid. Let's get to it. Jimmy. Bro, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a real treat to have you. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's good. It's good to be here. All right. So I want to start by asking, because there's so many different ways that many of us get into the blues. Some of us more academic. Some of us, it's just like kind of around or our parents listen to it or whatever. 
or it's something that we listen to because inherently people like the blues on the guitar. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into the blues, what your storyline is with the blues, and how it just became so much a part of your artistry? Man, that's deep. That's really deep. Um, well, first of all, it's more personal than that. It's it's not just like getting all the right licks and you know doing a little fancy stuff here and there. And it's 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 more about me. It's become playing what I feel. All right. And and I've said it many times, but but when you uh, when you start out, you know, you have a, a Buddy Guy record and a B.B. King record. I'm talking about the blues. So you have all these records. Like I had these records in the uh, early 60s. When I started, I just found out about the Yardbirds and uh, Eric Clapton and uh, uh, this friend of mine named... Uh, William Williams, who was uh, really into uh, uh, guitars and everything, he called me on the phone and he said that his uncle had been to England and he bought back this. Uh, he brought back this album called The Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton. So he played it for me over the phone. So that was a, a big deal because. Uh, just because it was just a little bit further. I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it, but it was wild over the phone and Eric Clapton got feedback yeah. and, you know, the blues break. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure you've heard it like, which was a Matt Murphy song. So anyway, um, I heard that, but I had a folk festival of the blues by uh, all those guys on chess. It was actually on Argo, and it was a live record that they I don't pieced that together. One. Do you know the you know the album Folk Festival of the Blues? Yeah, they called it a couple of different things, but it was on Argo, which was uh, a chess label, and it was live at Big Bill's Copacabana. Okay, and it was Buddy Guy. It was like a young Buddy Guy, eighteen or nineteen playing with Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and all these people. And it had Fred Belo on the drums and it had uh, uh, Jack Myers on the bass. So you got to listen to this album. It's the wildest thing you've ever heard. And you can imagine uh, a young, uh, just maybe 21, maybe not, buddy guy just playing with all these heroes. Fresh into town, Chicago. So there was that one. And that's where, uh, if you ever saw uh, Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart and all those guys, they had that. Yeah. Oh, okay. You ever heard that? So, well, that's where they got it off of is this album. It was it was in between, like whenever they would call Howlin' Wolf out, they would go, you know, do all that. So uh, that was the little uh, introduction between. Uh, and what it actually is, is uh, Bobby Blue Bland, 36, 22, 
36, you know that song? <laughs> yep, I do. <laughs> uh, it's it's Bobby Blue Bland uh, in the 50s, uh, 36, 22, 36. So that's what it is. This buddy guy played that on the guitar. Well, then you have um, all the rest of the guys come up and it's pieced together. So I later found out. But, um, and you know, I had a, uh, uh, the Buddy Guy album, uh, I can't remember the name of it. Which is like the Freddie King song, but it was uh, Mary Had a Little Lamb, they called it. And uh, the, and then I had, uh, of course, before any of that, I had Freddie King, because Freddie King was around Dallas. But when I first started trying to play the blues and everything, it was uh, I had I had those records. I had a couple of Freddie King albums, and uh, that was amazing. So my dad bought me those Freddie King albums, and uh, my dad was uh, one. He was a wannabe piano player, but I never saw him play piano. But uh, he wanted to. And he liked big band and jazz and all that kind of stuff. And my, my mother liked Hillbilly. She liked um, Merle Travis and uh, those kind of things, which it's really the same thing. Here's what I've learned over the last 50 years trying to play guitar. It's American music. It's all the same. It's really, it's really... My baby then left me, and uh, <laughs> I hope she's coming back. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it doesn't matter if you're if you're red, white, yellow, or blue. Uh, if you were in America in the fifties and sixties, that's what everybody was singing about, and still the case. So uh, let's see. And then, of course, I had uh, Chuck Berry records. The first forty-five that I went and bought on my own with my own money was um, Nadine by Chuck Berry, uh, which was not a really good, uh, it wasn't a, a big Chuck Berry song, but it was uh, his latest single. I saved my lunch money and went down and bought that record. And then I, but I already had the album greatest hits and see. And also my uncles were playing guitar on both sides of the family. My my uncles played like uh, yeah. <laughs> you know they, they played. They wanted to be like Merle Travis. Sure. And then my other uncles on my dad's side, where there was a drummer and a bass player, and they uh, they did a little bit of everything. Yeah. So uh, back in those days, everybody played Chuck Berry songs. Everybody played Jimmy Reed songs. It didn't matter if you were, if you went to see a Western swing band in a, in a beer joint, they would play. They would play Jimmy Reed, you know? So, uh, you know, there's this famous place between Fort Worth and Dallas called the Jacksboro highway. And, uh, it's it's uh, several miles or a few miles 
of honky-tonks. It used to be when I was a kid. And uh, it was just be one honky-tonk after another, and there, everybody had a band. Yeah. It sounds like you grew up around so much music and so much similar music as well. Not just your family playing, but the surroundings and just your influences and the records you were listening to. Yeah. That, that to me feels like you probably have this innate thing where you just kind of understand the genre. You understand how the blues, how honky-tonk, old-time, country, western, all those things blend and what the differences are. For many of us, like I didn't grow up around that. So for me, I read books on, here's some blues licks. Here's how to play the blues. Here's some albums to listen to. And I listened to them and I liked them. And you know, some of us have a little more of an academic learning of the blues or an academic learning of certain things. And then it's like, Oh, yeah, but then uh, also go out and find your own voice with playing the blues and find your own thing to say and say what you feel on the instrument. Well, see, I've got, I've got a story about all that. Okay. That, that sort of explains it in a very simple way. I, I was going to get to that. Okay. But here's, the, here's the deal. Yeah. Like when I first started playing, I, I found out the wild guys is the one is what I call them. the guys that were really wild, you know, like before Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix, there was Lonnie Mack. Hmm. Yeah. Lonnie Mack was, uh, was on American bandstand and uh, he had hit records, you know, uh, You know, all that stuff. Yeah. It was incredible. Uh, you know, I would go out and buy a Memphis or Wham. Do you remember Wham? You ever heard that? Go go listen to Wham by Lonnie Mack. Dif- different than the George Michael Wham. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, Lonnie Mack had the... Uh, the amp, uh, I can't remember the name of it, um, with the tremolo that went, the note went up and down. Oh, like a harmonic tremolo. It wasn't, it wasn't. A uh, magnetone, is that what they a are? Regular, magnetone, yes. Yeah, Lonnie, that's those amps. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Lonnie Mack had, I went to see Lonnie Mack uh, when I was 16 in LA, in Hollywood. I flew out there. And I went to a club, and it was Jimi Hendrix's club. It was called The Experience. Okay. And uh, I think it was a little short thing that he had for a while, probably. He had backers, you know. Sure. Who knows? But anyway, Lonnie Mack was playing there the day I went. And Lonnie Mack had uh, magnetone amps all the way across the stage. Yeah. Like, like 15 of them. <laughs> all hooked up together. And so the drummer and the bass were just out there, but he had amps all along the back, <laughs> you know. And he did all those songs, uh, Chicken Pickin', uh, Wham, Memphis, and then all the other ones, you know. So he was like the first Jimi Hendrix, if you know what I'm saying. So anyway, so anyway, back to the story. I'm getting all excited thinking about all this stuff. Because part of it was discovering it. And, you know, it was on like we had a, a radio station 
called uh, WRR, which was uh, came on at 10 o'clock at night till midnight. And they would play Jimmy Reed, Blues Records. That's where I heard Lightning Hopkins and Jimmy Reed and all that stuff. And then you would switch it over the radio. See, you had like a little bitty um, transistor radio in your bed because you're supposed to be asleep, right? <laughs> you're supposed to go to bed. Yeah. And so you would have a transistor radio, a little bitty battery one under your pillow. And then, then you would watch, you would listen to WRR. Then we, you would switch over to WLAC Nashville and they would, it would go on till midnight. And then you would switch over to XERF, Cunha, Coahuila, Mexico, and you would listen to Wolfman Jack. Yeah. And Wolfman, Wolfman Jack would play Helen Wolf, Muddy Waters, Jimmy Reed, and Chuck Berry, and all that stuff. And uh, so it was on the radio. You just had to figure out how to get it. Wow. That's incredible. So you do, you just knew like when when each blues channel was going to be on, or like when each station had these things happening. Well, yeah, it was every it was every night. That's amazing. It was every night, and and uh, that's probably why I failed school after I started playing guitar. <laughs> you know, because I didn't I didn't care about school anymore. I wanted to be a sure. guitar player. So. Uh, don't tell anyone that, but because uh, I don't want to be a bad influence, but uh, that's the way it was. So anyway, I got these records. I found a record store that had the blues downtown in, in Oak Cliff, and which is uh, South Dallas. Okay. So I would go down there. And when I got, I got in the band called the Chessmen and uh, the Chessmen uh played a lot of fraternity parties and and big shows and they were all 21 and I was uh 14 at first and then I, I you know and then I got 15 16 I was in there for 3 years so um I was making $300 a week uh in uh 1963 or 4 when I first started so I had money I would just go down and buy every album yeah that I liked, mm -hmm. you know, and so I would just, I, I practically bought the blues section, you know, <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, that's how I found out about all these guys. And then I started listening to the radio and, you know, it took a while, but, um, so I finally got all these records and I had BB King, of course, and all these guys. And then I imagined if you got in a room with all your favorite guitar players and it, you had a roundy roundy and it got, and it got to you, what in the world were you going to do? Because you, you couldn't, you couldn't do what BB King did. You couldn't do what buddy guy did. Right. So uh, you have to, if you're a guitar player and you're into all this stuff, you have to ask your knower as my mother used to call it. You have to ask your knower, what is it that I do? Because if 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 you were in a room with them and they, and you did a roundy roundy, and it got to you, what in the world were you going to do? You couldn't do what they did, or you can you can borrow yeah. some of it, as we as we all do, of course. Nobody makes it up. 
But for it to come out with your style, you have to ask yourself, what is my style? And then play what you want to hear. You have to ask yourself, what do I want to hear? And then try to play that. And it's not going to come the first day. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a lifelong thing. And it constantly changes. And you're constantly updated. And you throw away stuff. You get new stuff. You, you pick. You borrow and pick. And it's still going on today for me. Yeah. I'm a much slower guitar player than I used to be at 70. <laughs> But uh, uh, there was a while when I was a kid, uh, I saw this guitar player in Dallas. Uh, his name was, what was his name? Uh, I'll think of his name in a minute. But anyway, he had played a Telecaster, and he was the fastest guitar player I've ever seen. He could play so fast that you just, you know, like on, on rock and roll and blues. Yeah. His name was Julian. That was it. Okay. So uh, I wanted to I wanted to be fast like Julian, but then I figured out that I couldn't really play as fast as Julian. So I had to, if I couldn't play fast, then I had to play something that meant something, mm. right? Mm. You can't just play licks. You can't just go feel licks and put them all together because it's like it's like words. If you threw a bunch of words in a bowl and threw them on the paper, it wouldn't make sense, right? So you have to make a paragraph. You have to have a beginning and a middle and an end. And you know what I mean? It has to be like talk. That's, that's understandable. This is, uh, you know, the things that I came up with trying to figure out how to play. Uh, and how was I going to sound like myself? And the truth is, you, you never completely sound like yourself. Like if you, if we went and found, you know, somebody else that if we talked about some hero that we had, I'm sure that if you pressed them, they'd say, "Well, you know, I used to like this guy and this guy. And yeah, I took this and this and this totally, but it came out different." So it's a great country that we live in that we can can do this. And that we don't have to go down, you know, like my father, my father uh, was in East Texas and he was a sharecropper. His, his dad was a sharecropper. So that meant that they didn't own the land. They only worked like 10 acres. Okay. And they lived in the house that was on there. They didn't own anything. And then when they would turn in the crop at the end of the year, they would get whatever the guy wanted to give them. Sure. So anyway, so my dad was really excited that I wanted to be a musician and he liked music and my mother and father were dancers. So they would go dancing all the time and they actually went to see uh, a lot of these people that we like. Yeah. Uh, out there on Fort Worth uh, on Jacksboro Highway. So. Wow. Well, you said you're 70 years old now. And your style has yes. changed. You're playing uh, not as fast as you used to. There seems to be a thing, especially in the blues realm, but in the jazz world, in rock and roll, all styles of music, there, but especially in blues, I notice there is such a deeper thing that happens when I hear a lot of cats that are, a lot of players that are older. 
Like there's, there is a lived experience. There is a certain amount of wisdom within the phrasing, within the notes that I don't, that's just different than a lot of us younger players. You know, better, worse, doesn't, doesn't really matter, but there is a different depth and there's a different, there's a different thing to it. Is it really just the life experience? Is it just the years of going through whatever life is that gives you that? Or what do you think, like, how, how do people get to that? Well, I, I, I think that it's all of that, of course. I'm sure that in the next five years, your playing will open up and you'll learn all these things and you'll throw away a lot of things and you'll yeah. decide this. And then you'll wake up the next day and you'll decide that you don't like mm-hmm. that. You know, all that happens. But I think if you just keep playing every day and you really love it, it starts coming out. It's you. Mm. It's your version of this. It's your version of this thing we call uh, rock and roll blues, whatever you want to call it. Uh, You know, the reason why they used to call it a lot of stuff, I think, was, you know, like uh, the country and Western guys would have a different format and the blues guys would have a, a different format. And then, but they're all really listening to the same stuff. I, that's what I think back in the sixties anyway, and the fifties, especially. And, you know, uh, I was, so I was born in 51. So I remember listening to me. I saw Elvis on Ed Sullivan. You know, I mean, I sat there on the floor with my parents and watched it. It was just all exciting, just like it is now. It's, it, 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 you have so many different ways to uh, hear music and get music now. But uh, I wouldn't let that bother me. I would just uh, enjoy it and, and ask yourself, if you're interested, ask yourself, what is it that I do? Yeah. And your brain will tell you. Your your higher self yeah. will tell you, and you have to start listening, and you have to start developing that part. Yeah, and then it always changes too. So it's a great thing. When I turned thirty years old, I felt like I finally felt like I had something real to say. I felt like, and and you know, I, a lot of I wanted something to say when I was twenty two, but I don't right. feel like I I was I really had fully discovered who I was or what my voice was. And now even as, you know, the last few years have gone on, I'm I'm just I'm finally tapping into that more and more and I'm realizing a lot more things. It, yeah, and it, it'll keep going too, I think. Absolutely. You know what would be really scary? I had a dream one time that I went to a gig and I could just play anything that I wanted. And then I died <laughs> <laughs> in the dream. So I don't think you want to get there, if yeah. you know what I mean. <laughs> you want to keep going towards it. but uh. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about DistroKid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. 
You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Stratocaster, because you and I are both Strat guys. Okay. And there seems to be such a long lineage in many different genres with the Stratocaster. And we all have our own reasons for falling in love with it. What was it that really drew you to the Strat? Wow. Well, first of all, I had a Telecaster. Was uh, I had a Gibson with no cutaways and one P90 that my dad bought that my dad bought me. But I used to go over to my friend's house, whose dad had a Telecaster in the summertime, and I'd go over there and and say, "Can I play your dad's guitar?" <laughs> and he would be like, "Well, don't tell anyone, yeah. <laughs> you know, because his dad was at work." So. Uh, I always secretly wanted a a Fender. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is uh, about a Fender Stratocaster, but is it a lamp? Is it a a race car? (laughs) Uh, Is it a a ray gun? You know what I mean? It's all that. Yeah. It's everything. So it's... I'm just thankful that uh, Leo Fender shared his his dreams with us and uh, made this guitar that uh, is so cool. It's a beautiful instrument, isn't it? It's unbelievable. And um, you can can throw it down. You can do things (laughs) to it. And and it still works. Yeah. Uh, And it's, it's, but it's cool looking. It is. I when you look at it, you're just like, oh my god, I got a Stratocaster! <laughs> wow. So you know, I'm excited that that you're still this excited about the Stratocaster at 70. That's awesome. I I love it, and you know, I never get tired of it. And you can, you can, you can fool with it and make it sound any way. It it'll sound like a big box Gibson if you if you do it right. It'll sound like a Telecaster. It'll sound like uh, you can do anything with it. That's, that's why it's very versatile. When I was in college, my best friend had a Jimmy Vaughn signature Stratocaster that looks exactly like the one that you're holding in your hand that people can't see because this is an audio podcast. I had an opportunity to do a signature Stratocaster with Fender this year. And I know their process. You can basically choose everything you want about the guitar top to bottom what was it about, like, when you had the opportunity to, to develop everything you wanted with your Strat, I noticed maple fretboard and, you know, it's pickup style, the look and that sort of thing. What were the absolute non-negotiables that you needed and still need to this day in a Stratocaster? Well, first of all, when I first started trying to play guitar and got a, a Fender, I had that little bitty folded page catalog. Have you ever seen that? the old one that was like black and white. And I've um, seen them in vintage guitar stores. Yes. I know. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> my heroes uh, played Stratocaster. So um, there's so many things. It's really hard to describe yeah. why you choose things. I mean, I had a, 
uh, I had a Gibson, my couple of Gibsons. My father bought me a, uh, a 330. Yep. And, uh, you know, it had the P90s and it was sunburst. I've still got it. It was a beautiful thing. And I, I played it for, uh, we got a club gig six nights a week in the summertime. And uh, I was uh, 13. So my dad and the, it was a trio. So uh, my father and the other two fathers would, they would go, oh, darn, honey, I got to take the kids to work tonight because they can't get in. You know, they're too young. <laughs> so it was a great excuse for the dads to uh, go honky-tonking every night. And we sang, we sang through the jukebox. Mm. Like there was a stage and there was a go-go girl with boots and all that stuff. And we sang, we plugged the 664 Electro Voice microphone into the back of the jukebox. Yeah. Because it had a, P, had a PA. Oh, okay. Uh, Built into it? Yeah. Nice. But anyway, that's, that's how it got started. You know, I'm still trying to learn how to play. I'm still, my big, one of my big heroes is Kenny Burrell. Yeah. Kenny Burrell is the greatest. Incredible player. He's the greatest. He's got to be the, the world's greatest guitar player, uh, stylist, in my opinion. Because he can play, uh, he never he never diddles, you know what I mean. Yeah. He never hiddle 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 tanty way. <laughs> he never does that. He never does what all these other guys that you hear do. That is just Kenny Burrell always plays something that's beautiful, and he so he he's a good um, spiritual guidance, if you know what I mean. So, so I use uh, my favorite guitar players as uh, mentors. Uh, you know, you can always do that. You don't have to ask. Yeah. <laughs> you can just say, oh, no, he wouldn't do that. Mm, you know, sure. Or that sounds, what if it sounds stupid? I don't want to sound, I didn't get up here to sound stupid. Right. Even though maybe I do sometimes, but um uh, but anyway, these are the goals. We're talking about the goals, right? You want to you want to play something that uh, feels good, and maybe it says something, and it's important to you because it's from deep inside. Of course, everybody has to learn licks, and they have to learn. Uh, everybody's tried to sit around and play Jeff's boogie. You know what I mean? And I guess that's important for a self-taught kind of guy. But any, I think the ultimate goal is to find your own voice, if possible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, when, when, when we're listening, if we were to play records right now, if we were to play B.B. King live at the Regal, and then we were to switch over to Magic Sam, and then we were to switch over to Buddy Guy, we would know the difference. You and absolutely. I would know yeah. who, was, who was playing. And uh, that's pretty good ear training yeah you know yeah absolutely but then there's also all the other stuff that you don't know that all these great guys like kenny burrell know mm -hmm. you know you know like music <laughs> <laughs> sure so uh so it's it's never ending yeah and that's why it's so exciting you know yeah
I noticed you use flat wound strings on your Strat. Yes. Is that like a huge, obviously that, that changes the sound, it changes the attack, it changes the sustain. There's a lot of things that it changes. What got you into flat wounds and, and how do you incorporate that into your sound and what you do? Have you ever noticed that when you play a Strat or a Telecaster or any guitar, really electric, that when you, you know how the bass strings, I always wanted the little strings to be louder than the bass string. Okay. Right? Yeah. So you know how if you put on a brand new set of round wound strings and you're playing along and the bass is like, <laughs> you know, and it does that thing. <laughs> what do you call that? The beads, the beads. <laughs> okay. You know, what do you, what do you call that? I, I don't it, have a, it, a personal, uh, I personally don't have a terminology for that, but I, I, I'll from now call it. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> it, it, it makes the, uh, it's not pleasant. Sure. I mean, we don't want that. Well, flat wound strings don't do that. Flat wound strings and you can have light gauge or big or whatever. Uh, I'm only talking the A, I mean, the big E, the A and the yeah, D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have an unwound third. Okay, yep. So uh, it's just that once you go flat, you can't go back. What brand do you use? Well, I don't change them very much. That's awesome, by the way. I use any kind of good flat wounds. So I know what you're talking about with the round wounds, though, but I've, I've had to find... I've tried so many different sets of strings, and finally, I... I I I like flat. I've I've tried them. I use flat wounds on like my jazz box and my three thirty five style guitar sometimes. But some of the newer strings, some of the newer round wound ones, like the Paradigm series by Ernie Ball, is what I've been using, and they kind of they solved a lot of those things in the last few years. They're in the middle. They're in the middle. Yeah. Right. What do they call them now? Uh, I don't know. I I don't change strings very often. Sure. But uh, I like that. I like that <laughs> because you know the flat the flat wounds will last for a long time, and they just get better and better and better. And you know, used to we would change the regular strings like every gig for a while. You yeah, know? you know because they I don't even know why, but um, yeah, but I, I solved it with the flat wounds. Nice. And they also have round wounds, uh, not round wounds, but uh, what do they call those that are, that are in between? Half wound. That are shaved. I think they're half wounds. Yeah. They sound good too. Yeah. But uh, I, don't, I don't have, um, I can go on tour and play every night for a month and I don't, my fingers don't get sore anymore. Ah, yeah. I don't, you know, I used to go out like when we were out with the Thunderbirds We'd be playing every single night somewhere and you get a crack on your finger yeah, and it gets really sore, but you got to, you got to grit and bear through it. And then you got another couple of weeks of bearing through it. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't heal. Right. And we, and, and, you know, there's like, uh, what do you call that skin stuff they used to put on there? Um, soft skin. Yeah. Or, some people even new use skin. yeah new skin new skin new skin or super glue. Some people use super glue. Uh, super glue, <laughs> yes, all that, yeah. all that. And so, but but flat wounds. If you put them on the bass strings, 
You won't have that. Sure. It's going to take you a little, it's going to take you a little bit to get used to it, but life is much better with flat worms. (laughs) All right. And they sound better. They sound better to me. You can also, you can also put them down real low. Yeah. Lower. That's true. And they, they make it, they make a thud, which comes through the amp, you know. Cool. I'm going to try it. I'm going to put some flat ones on a Strat and, and check it out. Well, see, I remember I used to have uh, big box Gibson guitars and harmony guitars and things like that. And I would put flat wounds on them, like you said. But then the day that I put them on my Stratocaster, it's like, oh, <laughs> the clouds opened up. I like that. That's funny. Okay, when I think about Stratocaster players, I think of a, there's there's different realms, and there's one album in particular that you did that I'm curious about because three monster Strat players involved in this album, all with very unique voices. Jimmy Vaughn, Stevie Ray Vaughn, Niall Rogers. Niall produced one of your guys' albums, and I'm curious... Because Nile to me, I didn't, I didn't like when I think of straight down the middle Nile Rogers, I think of, you know, Chic and I think of the producing thing. What was it about? What was it that drew you to Nile with that sort of thing? And what do you think he brought out of you? And what do you think, like, how did that, what was that whole collaboration like? Well, Nile is my favorite producer. He's the greatest producer that I've ever worked with. And, and I'll explain why. But what first happened was, is uh, he was producing David Bowie and Stevie came to do the David Bowie cut. And that's where, uh, that's where Stevie met David Bowie. So we had a guy at uh, Epic, Epic Records, Tony Martell, that kept coming to uh, Jimmy Vaughn and Stevie Vaughn. And he kept saying, one of the days you guys have to make a record together and uh when we and when i was a little kid we'd be at home and my dad was somebody would come over a a friend of his or something and my dad would say jim go get your guitar and stevie you get yours too and uh at first you know stevie had a little toy guitar so and we would bring him out and he would say okay play a song for our guests and then the guy would clap and he'd say, that's pretty good, kids. And he would say, one of these days, maybe you can make a record together. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because uh, it was like, uh, you know, when you're 14 or 12 or whatever it is, 10, you can't imagine what it's like to really make records, but that's what you want to do, you know. So anyway, so that, that seed had always been planted. And then Tony Martell started saying uh, when, when we had Tough Enough and when Stevie had uh, In Step, that's when uh, it started really hitting. Uh, first, it was Stevie with In Step. That was, uh, he had other big sure. records, but that one was really uh, uh, a game changer as far as record yeah. companies, yeah. you know. So um, he was hitting it on all 12 cylinders and really getting popular. And the guy at the record company said, Hey, I want you to make a record with Jimmy. And then, and then the guy told me, he said, I want you to make a record with Stevie. So it was three or four years before we actually got to do it. 
And uh, it was very difficult because the other guys in the band were pissed off. They didn't want that. Right? Really? <clears throat> they don't want to stop. Well, they don't want to stop touring. Oh, and sure. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They don't want to get. They don't want to get. They don't want to get knocked out of their uh, chair. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. that, that I mean. makes sense. So, so to speak. I mean, it's normal. Sure. So we got together. Finally, we got together and started talking about it, Stevie and I. And we said, okay, if we're going to use uh, Nile Rogers is the producer, and we're not going to use any of the band. Mm. We're not going to use my band. We're not going to use your sure. band. That way we don't have to. It's all new. No favoritism or whatever. None of that stuff. Because, you know, because, you know, it's all that. You know how Absolutely. it is when yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I get it. You've been playing with guys for a long time and you, you love them, but you still want to try something different. Sure. So Nile said, I know just the guys. <laughs> and so uh, he got Larry on the bass yeah. and uh, and the guy on the drums, which I'm, I'm, he's going to kick my ass for, I can't think of his name all right off. Uh, uh, but anyway, they were young, great players that were really good. They, they were outstanding uh, bass and drums. And if, if you ever get a chance to work with Nile Rogers, do it. He's on my list. I would love to. He's one of my heroes. You, he's the greatest because uh, he, he doesn't think that there's anything you can't do. Like if you say, well, I don't know how to do that. He'll go, well, it's like this <laughs> and he'll do it. Yeah. He'll do it. And, and he, uh, he can also play jazz. He can play anything yeah. on his Stratocaster that he, he always loved Stratocaster. So yeah. it was perfect. Oh, totally. And, uh, you know, he can sing and he can write lyrics. I mean, a lot of those songs we wrote in an afternoon, just sitting in front of the uh, the the board, yeah. you know. I mean, he's he's absolutely incredible, you know. And he played rhythm on a lot of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, you could tell in there. Yeah. And I think uh, yeah. Google is telling me Al Barry on bass and Larry Aberman on drums. Al Barry and Larry Aberman, they were fantastic. And then, of course, Nile knew all the great singers and horn players yeah. and keyboard guys and uh, and we we tried to bring some of our our favorite guys sure. in uh like we brought we brought in uh the accordion player uh from Louisiana he on family style he says uh just play something and I'll feel it uh, at the beginning of uh, I can't think of his name anyway he's the greatest he did my toot toot okay do you remember yeah, that song yeah. Anyway, he was on there, so we got to bring uh, a lot of different people on there. But it was exciting. We did the album, we did the whole album in, in three different sessions: Dallas, Memphis, and New York City. It was a, a couple of a weeks or a week at a time, and the album came together really fast. And we mixed it, and and it was set to come out, and then Stevie got killed. Oh. So if he got killed, you know, it was already set the release date and the singles and everything. And then we had to change everything. I did not know that was the timing of that album. Yeah. So it, it, uh, it came out after Stevie got killed. Wow. So, 
So we, you know, we couldn't really promote it. It didn't feel sure. right to uh, promote it in a normal way. So um, we we talked to Nile and the record company, and we just put out TikTok because TikTok was uh, kind of, uh, you know, spiritual. Let's all get together and be nice for our kids and stuff like that. You yeah. Know? But uh, uh, but. Had Stevie not died then, uh, I think we would have gone out on tour and uh, maybe made a couple of other albums. Yeah. Because it was fun. I can imagine. It was really fun. Yeah. And and it was all different and exciting. And uh, not that it wasn't great with the Thunderbirds. Sure. Yeah, and yeah, I get it. Double Trouble. But you know what I mean? Here's a, all of a sudden you got a new thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Do that. And then it makes the old stuff new too. Of course. So... Now you've done a lot of albums. You've been in different bands and you're talking about Niall as a producer. I'm curious for you, what just in your experience working with other producers, whether you're a guest on somebody else's album, whether you're working on your own, what do you think makes a good producer? What do you like out of a producer communication wise and also just like creative wise, logistics wise? Well, you know, a lot of the guys that produce records are not musicians. Um, maybe maybe they are, but I don't know. Now was just cool. Like he he could always back up if, if he said something to you. Like he could always back it up. Like he would say, "Well, because this and this and this and this, and then because of this," and you're like, "Oh, you know." <laughs> so, and a lot of guys are like, you know, a lot of times you. Uh, I don't know if you've ever run across a producer that gets, comes in there and they goes, I don't like this room sound you got going here. And they, they get the flashlight out and they start looking at your speaker. <laughs> have you ever had those guys do that in the yeah. studio? You know how they have the flashlight and they look at your speaker and they go, well, I'm trying to find the cone here. And then they put the microphone up there. That's bull. <laughs> That's not the way it works. <laughs> you know, it's, you got to have a room mm. mic. Yeah. That's what makes the guitar sound live and like a guitar. Sure. You know, if uh, when all the close miking and the modern technology, some of it's great, uh, but a lot of it is not very, doesn't sound very good. You know, what do you think? Well, I, as far as producers go, I mean, to me, that, that sounds a little more like an engineering thing. But as far as producers go, I think like you're saying with Niall, where they can really encourage you and help draw things out of you that maybe you didn't know were inside of you. Maybe things about you that they see are like really magnetic. Like what is it that's most magnetic about Jimmy Vaughn? Why do people love Jimmy? Well, let's try to just shine the flashlight on that instead of worrying about shining the flashlight on the cone of the speaker. It's like they, they don't get yeah. into the technical as well, much as they get the artist. Niall knew all about that kind of stuff. And he, I don't know if he just knows that in his knower, if he's, if he just is, is uh, like that, or if, if he learned it from his mother, I don't know. You know what I mean? But uh, he's the greatest. And then it got to where the point where uh, I just want to produce my own records because I'm the one that really knows what I would like to do. Now, the only problem with that is everywhere I go, there I am. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so the record companies 
and the radio stations and all the current trends and all that stuff, they may not like um, me <laughs> as a producer. Uh, but you have to get past all that and just do what's in your heart. And then maybe if you if you do something genuine, people will like it. That's my hope. Yeah, people can sniff out something that's fake. That's my hope and my prayer. You know what yeah. I mean? Awesome. I like that. Well, speaking of releases and your own stuff, I heard you have a new box set coming out. Can you tell me a little bit about what this collection is? Here's my new box set. It looks like that looks cool. Oh yeah. How many? So that looks like what a 12 disc set. No, it's five CDs and a book. Oh, and a book. Oh, okay. I see. It's like a book with all pictures that you've never seen. Most of them. That's cool. And then five CDs. That is some of the coolest album design I've ever seen. It it looks like an amp. It's a hundred. It's over a hundred songs. Wow. So what happened was um, Malcolm Mills from the record company said, I want you to go in and pull out all your old stuff that was never, that you think was pretty good, that didn't make it on a record or, or, or some weird thing, you know, this or that, and send it to me. We'll, we'll look at it, all of it. So that's how we came up with a lot of this stuff. Uh, a lot of it was, uh, you know, like one time uh, the head of the um, UT football team, marching band, called me up and said, hey, would you come play with us? Yeah. At the football game. Wow. And I was like, can you do that? You know? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, you can do it. So he wrote arrangements of a couple of my songs, several songs, and they marched. And then I got to play with them. So there's uh, a song on here of me playing with the UT marching band That's awesome. at the football game. That's awesome. And it was really loud <laughs> and it was raining. It was raining and I did flood. Oh, yeah. Wow, that's cool. It was pretty exciting. But there's all kinds of weird things like that on there. And then here's the box set. Now, if you buy the big box set, it's got a, a an LP and 45s and uh, it's got, uh, you know, all the same stuff, but more. I dig that. It's pretty exciting. It's probably cool to um, to go back and revisit those moments too, you know, throughout your entire career and, and put it all together in one package. Yeah, absolutely. I had to go through, I had to go through my- I had to go in my storage shed and go through all the old stuff that I've kept. There's T-Birds. Uh, there's fabulous Thunderbird stuff that's never been released. There's all kinds of uh, weird little things, you know, like um, I played with Lazy Lester and uh, James Cotton and uh, Jimmy Rogers and uh, – uh, Billy Gibbons, yeah, and uh, you know, there's all kinds of stuff like that cool. on there. So awesome, Denny Freeman, Sue Foley, Omar, Little Milton, John Lee Hooker, Doctor John, Eric Clapton, BB uh, King, Albert Collins, Bo Diddley, 
uh, Bonnie Ray, all kinds of stuff on here. So, but but I still have to. I'm writing a new. I'm trying to write a new album. I'm trying to get in the mode for uh, to do next year. Oh, well, you always have to uh, look ahead and uh, at least convince yourself what you're going to try to do next. You know. Yeah. Well, Jimmy, thank you so much for your time. It really means a lot to hear your wisdom, hear stories about your albums, stories about how you got going in your career and are still at it today. It's really inspiring to see that you're still creating, still releasing music and touring. It's, it's really awesome. So thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Well, I hope I wasn't too crazy. There you have it. Jimmy Vaughn. Super cool. I, I, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I knew he was going to be cool because he like, just look at him. He looks cool. But uh, that was awesome. I really, I really enjoyed that. So next week, we got another great show. And if you've missed out on the last couple episodes, you gotta go back because we've had some great guests and actually past seasons as well. I've been at this. This is season four. So, you know, if you're new to the podcast, scroll back. See what other po- see what other guests we've had because we've had some amazing guests. And smash that subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of the upcoming episodes. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Peace. <laughs>